once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. God gave Jonah a mission. Jonah chose not to accept it. Lead teacher Jeff Norris starts the new series, Into the Depths of God's Heart and Ours, with this sermon entitled Rebellion, which covers Jonah, Chapter 1. For more information, to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Our scripture reading today is Jonah 1, 1 through 17. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amide, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come. Let us cast lots that we may know one, know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account the evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice for the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Keon. Let's, uh, let's pray aloud together our prayer of illumination. Oh Lord, by this we know that we abide in you and you in us because you have given us of your spirit altogether. Abide with us as we worship you today and may your spirit illumine our hearts and minds that we might know and love you more deeply. Amen and amen. Well, as you just heard read before you, we are beginning today in a four-week series in the book of Jonah, which is one of... uh, one of my favorite books of the Bible to read and consider and sit under and, and even teach. Uh, there's so much to this story that perhaps at first reading uh, we miss. We're not able to see all that God has for it. Now I think about this story and think about what we're gonna see both in chapter one today and in the weeks to come. 
It occurs to me uh, that one of the greatest books that perhaps meant for me top five books that was ever written in Christianity is Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And in that book, at the very beginning of the book, he begins to lay out the difference between knowing about God and knowing of God. And there's a significant gap between the two. You can know a lot about God, facts and information, but knowing of him is something entirely different. Of course, the knowing of him involves knowing about him, but knowing about him doesn't necessarily mean that you know of him. And, and I think about that, and I think about, well, sure, that's true of any relationship that we have. Any interpersonal relationship would be the same. You can know a lot about someone without knowing them, knowing of them. And, and of course, that naturally, the one that comes to mind the most is my relationship with Rachel, my wife. And uh, we've been together, we've been married 21 years. We dated three years before that. So 24 years together, I certainly know a great deal about her. I can tell you just lots of interesting things that are just facts about her. She was born in Gadsden, Alabama. She, um, she did all kinds of activities growing up, was involved in pretty much every sport that you could name. She did cheerleading. She did volleyball and soccer and basketball and track and probably three or four more that I'm not remembering. She was incredibly athletic and, and uh, active. Just a couple of weeks ago, I kid you not, Rachel and I had a great opportunity week before last to go on uh, just a short trip with uh, a few other pastors and their wives for a marriage uh, retreat. And one of the things the guy leading the retreat said is, I want you to take five minutes, go away for just five minutes with your spouse and tell them something about you they don't know. And I just immediately inwardly panicked. I was like, we've been together 20, married 21 years. There's nothing that I can tell her that she doesn't know about me. And so I'm, I'm just racking my brain. I can't think of anything. I'm having to come up with something just so meaningless and obscure. But, and that's because, partly because I'm the verbal processor, right? Anything that I think typically comes out in, in conversation. Well, Rachel's not that way. She's not a verbal processor. And so she had a couple of things that she brought up that when she told me, I thought, how have I never known that? Like, and, and again, not just huge things, but I mean, kind of big. The first one was that she was Miss Cheerleader in high school. I don't know what that means, but it sounds awesome. <laughs> I'm like, Miss Cheerleader, that's my wife, yes. But the second one got even better. The second one was that, um, that she uh, modeled, she was a child model, to which I said, how have I been with you for 24 years and I've never known this about you? She goes, Jeff, I was 10, it's not a big deal. I said, all I heard was that you were a model. I married a model. <laughs> I'm gonna work that into every conversation from here on out. Somebody will be talking, I'll be, hey, that's really cool. Did you know I married a model? I mean, I was blown away. I, 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 how did I not know these things? But now those it's more I know about her. But here's the thing. I could genuinely, realistically, I could spend the rest of our time together this morning telling you things about Rachel. But the fact of the matter would remain is that you would leave here knowing a lot about her, but for the vast majority of you, you still wouldn't know her. How do you know someone? It's through spending time with them. It's through a relationship with them, sitting with them, pursuing them, pursuing their heart. 
sharing their heart. That's how you know someone. And it occurs to me, and this is what Packer was getting at in his book as well, is that there's a great deal of us who, who are in church, who are Christians, who identify as those who know God, which in reality, we know a lot about God, but do we know him? Do we, do we sit with him? Do we know him in such a way? And here's the key. Is our proximity to him such that we share his heart? That's the key. Because Christians that know a lot about God but don't share his heart end up miserable. I've often said that the most miserable people in the world are not non-Christians who know nothing about God. But Christians, those who identify as followers of Christ, know a great deal about him, but don't know him such that they share his heart because they know just enough about him to misunderstand him. They know just enough about him to be frustrated by him because they don't share his heart. One of the things that we will see in this book that is hard for people who know a lot about God but don't share his heart is simply this, that God's love and his grace and his mercy are just as offensive and, un and uncomfortable as they are amazing and renewing. Let me say that again. God's love and his mercy and his grace are just as offensive and uncomfortable as they are amazing and renewing to our souls and hearts. In other words, God, by his grace and by his love and his mercy, he will do such a work in us that he will dig so deep in us to uncover the depths of our rebellion and sin that we will be deeply uncomfortable and we'll only be able to move forward and take another step with him if we begin to compre uh, comprehend the, the immensity of his grace. Similarly, he will call us to go places out there through us that are so deeply uncomfortable and actually to a people who offend us that we will not take a step towards them unless we begin to comprehend the magnitude of his love and his mercy and his grace. It's what we will see in, even in the beginning chapter of Jonah. Because Jonah, what we're gonna see is Jonah knows a great deal about God. He's a prophet of God. He knows the scriptures. He knows a great deal about God, but he didn't share the heart of God. If you're like me, you're familiar with the story. Perhaps you grew up in church. And when you think of Jonah, you think this is a story about a man who was swallowed by a fish. And that's true, that's part of the story, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is not about a man who was followed by a fish, it's about a God. A God who is so very gracious, whose grace and love and mercy is so deep and wide and extensive, it makes us uncomfortable. Because it's, it's a grace that pushes us into spaces both within us and with, without us, outside of us that are so uncomfortable, we're not sure what to do unless we share the heart of God. Why? Because his grace leads us to people who offend us. Even more specifically, his grace leads us to our enemies. 
the very ones who hate us. The story begins with an unthinkable call. An unthinkable call there in verses one and two. The story starts right right into it. Very first verse. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. We know that this is the same Jonah who's spoken of in 2 Kings chapter 14, that he's a prophet who prophesied right there, just the only other place he shows up in scripture, and he just, he tells God's people that they're gonna gain some land back from Syria, pretty inconsequential thing in terms of the great scheme of the Bible, but we know that he's a prophet, that the Lord has used him in times past and currently as this story as his mouthpiece. That's what a prophet is. A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of the Lord. What's the situation in Israel when this word of the Lord comes to Jonah? What's the context? The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, but what's going on? Well, a couple of things. One, Israel is actually, at that moment, in, the, in those years that Jonah's receiving this, they're, they're experiencing a little bit of a time of prosperity and peace, which if you've read through the Old Testament and the history of Israel, you know is not all that common. But they're having a time of prosperity and peace. But meanwhile, there are still spiritual wrecks. The prosperity and peace that they're experiencing is only by the grace of God, not because of their obedience and faithfulness to him. Spiritually, they are as in thick as they ever have been with false gods with apostasy, with idolatry, worshiping in the places, on the high places, the gods of Baal and the temple of Baal, erecting asterisks, all, all kinds of things that we see in the Old Testament. That's going on in great number when, in Israel when, when Jonah gets the word from the Lord. The other thing that we see here is that Hosea and Amos, you don't see it in the text, but you see it in context which is there are two other prophets who are contemporaries with Jonah at this time who are also prophesying. They're also hearing from the Lord and speaking to God's people. And what they're saying, what Hosea and Amos are saying is they're giving a warning and they're saying judgment is coming and it's coming through a nation that God is going to raise up against you to take you into captivity, to ruin you because of your disobedience, because of your idolatry, because of your hardness of heart. And as they are prophesying that, they're also giving them a little bit of hope. They're saying, look, that's going to happen. God's going to raise up a country against you, a nation against you, but I will save a remnant, says the Lord. Those who will continue to be preserved because God never forgets his covenant. So you would imagine the expectation is that after reading, if you're a reader back then of this letter, you would think, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying that the next sentence would be that the Lord is sending him to Israel because that's what God always did. He would send his prophets to Israel to call them out of repentance, to help them see their sin, to, to help them be aware of what they're not seeing that's going on in their hearts and in their practices and to call them back into a path of worship and obedience to the Lord. So it's all the more shocking if you're a Hebrew, if you're an Israelite, to see what comes next. Because where does he call him? 
He says, arise, verse two, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah becomes the first and only prophet in the Old Testament to be sent to a nation to proclaim the word of the Lord that is not Israel. But it's not just any nation. God calls him to go to Nineveh, who was, uh, at the time, was the last great capital city of the Assyrians. Maybe a few of you in here that know your Bible such that you immediately perk up when you hear that because you go, whoa, hold on, hold on. Wasn't that the country? Wasn't that the nation, the people that Amos and Hosea were saying was gonna be the nation that God was gonna raise up to destroy the Israelites? To take them into captivity? Oh yeah, that Assyria. Did Jonah know that? I don't know, we don't know. Maybe he didn't knew that at the time. But even if he didn't know it, Assyria had done enough damage to Israel in the past to where uh, they were for sure the enemies of Israel. They were a savage nation who had already inflicted a great deal of pain on Israel in the past, not to mention what was coming. It would be, it's, it's easy for us to read Jonah and to be so hard on Jonah, to be so critical of him, and it's inappropriately. But I want you to just try to put yourself in his shoes for just a moment and think about what God is calling him to, this unthinkable call of God. He's saying, I want you to not go to your own people who are far from me, but I want you to go to another nation who is also far from me, but it's not just any other nation. It's the ones that you hate and that they hate you. Your enemies. Maybe this will help. It wouldn't be too unlike right now if someone said, if God raised up someone in Ukraine right now and said, I want you to go and be a missionary to Moscow. The very ones who have bombed you relentlessly over the last several months. I want you to go and I want you to proclaim the goodness of the Lord. I want you to call them to repentance. And Jonah knows, Jonah knows the nature. Remember, he knows a lot about God and he knows that what's true about God is that God never calls people out of evil without giving them a promise of grace. He didn't want any part of that. These people have been terrible to us. I don't want to go there. I'd never do that. Why, God? I, I don't want to do it. I'm not going to do it. Not now. Not ever. What about you? Let's make it personal. Who, who in your life could be an individual, could be a group of people? Who is God calling you to? Who has he said, I want you to go and to be the very demonstration, both in word and in deed, of my grace, my love, my mercy, my forgiveness, and everything within you, if God were to call you to them, which he is, you would push in every way back against God and say, no, God, not now, not ever. I will not do that. 
You know, it reminds me of the story of Corey Timboon. Many of you know that name. She was, she and her family were the ones that famously sheltered and, and protected and provided for Jews in the Second World War when they were discovered by the Nazis of what their operation was doing. Corey Tim Boom and her entire family were also put in concentration camps. She was the only one of her family to survive. After the war was over, she uh, fairly quickly became one of the leading speakers within Christianity all throughout the world. She would travel and share the gospel of Jesus Christ and her story and the way in which God has met her through it all. And everywhere she would speak, people would come up afterwards wanting to meet her and thank her. Just a couple years after the war, she was doing just that. She was speaking and sharing the gospel in Germany. And as she is speaking and surveying the faces in the crowd, in the middle of her talk, she noticed a face that she recognized, a former soldier from the camp she was in. And not just any former soldier, but one of the very ones who had tortured her and her family. And even more, one of the soldiers who had participated in the murder of her sister. As she's speaking, she's simultaneously praying, oh God, please don't let him come up afterwards. As she finishes her talk, he does come up afterwards. He begins to make his way forward and she begins to pray, oh God, please, please make him turn around. But he doesn't turn around. He makes his way all the way to her and he puts out his hand to shake hers and he says, you may not remember me, I was a soldier in the camp that you were in and I did some awful things. And I know Jesus Christ forgives me, but can you forgive me? What would you do? How would you respond? If the grace of God has taught you such that you in your heart is just as wicked, maybe not demonstrably in the same way, but effectively the same, then you would do what Corey Ten Boom did. She looked him in the eye and she remembered the saying from her sister, there is no sin that is so deep in the pit that God's grace doesn't go deeper. And she said, how could I not forgive you? For he has forgiven me. What would you do? Who is your Nineveh? Where is God calling? Secondly, as we work our way through the story, we see, we see the unexpected response of Jonah. And, and it's unexpected because prophets are... Prophets are supposed to obey, right? If you're a prophet of God, you do what he tells you to do and you say what he tells you to say, regardless of the cost. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, all these prophets who suffer greatly, Jeremiah and Isaiah, Ezekiel, Elisha and Elijah, all of them suffered greatly as they proclaimed the word of the Lord. Jonah should do the same, right? He's a prophet. Well, not only do we see Jonah not obey, we see him run in the complete opposite direction. 
Verse 3a, the first part of verse three says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. We'll come back to that last part of that verse, but where, where is Tarshish? What, what is it? Where, where, what's going on here? Well, we don't know exactly where it was. Some people think it was all the way over in Spain. Others say it was more in the middle of the Mediterranean, perhaps a part of the island of Crete. We don't know, but what we do know is very clear is that it represented west, far west. Where was Nineveh? East, modern day northern Iraq. So Israel is right in the middle between those. And he doesn't just say, no, I will not go. He says, I will go the other complete opposite direction. But why? Why does he run? Here's what I think. I think it's because he knows about God. But he doesn't share his heart. He knows what God is up to, as I mentioned earlier. He knows, as I said, God never calls out against the people's evil without also corresponding, giving a corresponding promise of grace. He, he knows about God well enough to know, God, you're gonna do something over there in Nineveh that I don't want you to do. I don't want to do that. I don't want to see them repent. I don't want to see your grace go as far as I know it will go. They don't deserve your love. This is what we do, right? We're just like Jonah. We decide who's eligible for grace. We determine who's worthy of forgiveness. We take the woundedness of our hearts and project them in such a way to determine who's worthy of the love of God. It's exactly what Jonah's doing. He's running because he knows enough about God to know what God is up to, but he doesn't share the heart of God. He's running. I want you to remember Nineveh's salvation. Remember this. Remember what we talked about? Nineveh's salvation means Israel's ultimate destruction. Why would he want to be a part of that? The grace of God is offensive. It's uncomfortable. Leads us into an offensive and uncomfortable spaces with offensive and uncomfortable people. I want you to notice as the narrative progresses the repeated emphasis on the word down. Look at the second part of verse three. He went down to Joppa. Now, that's geographical. You do have to go down southwest from where he lived around the Sea of Galilee to Joppa, which is modern-day Tel Aviv. So yes, he did have to travel down, as it were, on the map, geographically. But you'll notice as the narrative progresses throughout chapter one and into chapter two that this is purposeful. It's representative. It's, it's imagery to show that what Jonah is ultimately doing is he's sinking down into his rebellion. The further each step he takes away from God, the further he goes down. The further he experiences the consequences of his rebellion, the further, the more he sinks down into his own pain and his own anguish and his own detriment. 
But it says it again there in verse three. It says that he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish. And it says it again, away from the presence of the Lord. To which Jonah's thinking somewhat logically here. He's thinking about the temple. Because in that day, God's spirit dwelled in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in the innermost part of the temple. So in, in a sense, he's thinking very literally, very two-dimensionally, if you will, right? That, that, okay, the further away, the farther away I get from Jerusalem, then I'll be away from the presence of the Lord. And he can't get me. <laughs> when we run from the Lord, we lose our wits about us, don't we? Because what is, Jonah's a prophet of the Lord. He knows the scriptures. He knows the Psalms. He knows Psalm 139 that was written a couple of centuries by King David before him. And he knows what Psalm 139 says. He knows that Psalm 139 says this. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, listen to this. Don't miss what he's about to say, the irony. And dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there you shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. He knows this, but when we're running from the Lord, we lose our spiritual wits about us. We start making foolish decisions. We start doing things that are completely opposite of what we know is true and right, even about God. Even if we don't know of him, we know this is true about God. We know that he's omnipresent. Yes, he chooses to, lay, to let his spirit dwell in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, but he's everywhere. Where can I go from your presence? Nowhere. You think you can run from God? Even if I go to the uttermost parts of the sea, there you lead me. Even there your right hand will uphold me. Listen, when we run from God, foolishness becomes our norm. It just becomes, it becomes our MO. If we think we know better than God, the story of Jonah reminds us that every step we take away from him is ultimately to our detriment. Maybe good for a little while. Ultimately, it will be to our detriment. Third point, and we'll hit fast forward here. Verses four through 17 begin to show us, unravel for us the unrelenting pursuit of God. Now, I could have gone with relentless, but then I wouldn't have a third you. <laughs> the unrelenting pursuit of God. God won't let Jonah get away. Jonah pays money. He gets in the boat. He takes off. What does God do? God hurls a storm, not just any storm, but a violent storm, a storm that was of such Violence that even the professional mariners who live on the sea are terrified. A storm that causes them to throw their profit overboard. They are throwing barrels to lighten the weight of the ship. They don't care about money anymore. They care about living. Survival becomes the utmost priority for these men. But where is Jonah? Verse five, but Jonah had gone, here it is again, down 
It's literal, but it's also metaphorical. He'd gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. <laughs> the I could not care less ness about Jonah right here is shocking. The callousness of Jonah's heart is stunning. He is so at peace with his running from God. I don't want you to think, when it says ship here, I don't want you to think Carnival Cruise Lines. This is not a big boat. It is being tossed to and fro across huge waves, and Jonah is sleeping. So much so that the captain has to come wake him up. The waves aren't doing it. The captain has to go down and shake him awake and essentially say, what are you doing? Do you not care? We're all about to die. And they begin to ask him. They threw, they, uh, back in that day, it was very common that you draw lots to determine from the gods who's at fault. Israel was actually not. Uh, banned by God from doing this. It was just another way for him to show his sovereignty as the one true God. So they cast lots. It fell, falls on Jonah. They say, you're the man. What have you done? They begin to ask him questions. And he answers. Watch what he says. The, the, uh, the sentence in this whole passage that is just hilarious. It is so full and thick and dripping with irony. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. And catch this, who made the sea and the dry land? Well, if he made it, does he not reign over it? Does he not rule it? Does he not control it? Notice how he started the sentence. What's most important to him? I'm a Hebrew. Why is that important to him? Well, because he says, I'm God's people. I'm set apart, I'm unique, I'm different than you. You're not a Hebrew, I am. His identity and his hope is ultimately in his ethnicity and his ancestry, something that God has to deal a lot with Israel about. Over and over again, he has to tell Israel, look, it's not about that you're descendants of Abraham. It's not about that you're circumcised in the flesh. It's about the circumcision of the heart. It's not about your lineage, it's about your Lord. He says, I'm a Hebrew. He's not understanding, even in the midst of his running. But he knows the right thing to say, doesn't he? He knows what to say about God in the midst of running from God. We're pretty good at that as well. But notice, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't tell the sailors, say, hey, okay, here's what we do. We just turn, we turn the ship around and we go back to Joppa. I just need to, I need to do what God told me to do. No, he says in self-pity, self-loathing, self-righteousness even, he says, just throw me overboard. In other words, I'd rather die than obey God. But the sailors, if there's a hero in chapter one, it's not Jonah, it's the sailors. Well, ultimately it's God. Well, what do the sailors do? Verse six, they care. They care that they're dying. 
Jonah doesn't care, but they care. They care that Jonah's dying. Verse 13, they try to save him. He says, throw me into the sea. And they say, no, what do they do? They dig in harder, trying to row to land and they can't get there. They're trying to save, they're not, we're not throwing you overboard. They care about Jonah's life. They call out to God. They, they basically say, well, if this guy's not gonna call out to his God, we'll call out to his God. And then when they do throw him overboard and they see the power of the Lord calming the storm, what do they do? They make sacrifice and vows to God. Jonah never does any of that. Why in the world, here's where we land with all this. Why in the world would God send this guy? <laughs> Why would he send Jonah? Here's why. Because Jonah, the story of Jonah doesn't just serve as, an his, as a historical account about one man's disobedience to God. God preserved this writing first for the nation of Israel to hold it up as a mirror to them and say, you're Jonah. Israel is Jonah. This is you. This is your heart. This is what you keep doing. You keep running from me. You keep sinking down further into your own rebellion. You give me all the lip service and you run away with your hearts. You know the right things to say about me, Israel, but you don't share my heart. He's preserved this now for thousands upon thousands of years, not just for Israel, but for us, to hold it up to us and say, church, you're Jonah. Apart from the grace of God, this is who you are. You know the right things to say about me, but oh, so very often, even as you proclaim my greatness, you don't share my heart. Why? Because at the depths of who we are, we don't believe that God's grace goes deeper than our deepest sin. And we don't believe that his grace goes deeper than our enemy's deepest sin. But the beauty, the beauty of Jonah 1 is that Jesus is written all over it. You don't see his name, but we see this beautiful picture of God's relentless pursuit, his unrelenting pursuit of us in this way. If we're Jonah, then we see that in our hearts, we do the same thing. We go down to the joppas of the world to run from God. We go down in the boat to callously sleep while those around us perish. We go down into the depths of our rebellion, but God goes deeper still. How? Because he came down. He came down to not just say you're rebellious, but to take on our rebellion, to, to shoulder it as if it were his own, own, to say, you are the rebellious one, but I will receive your rebellion upon me. Why? So that you can know God, not just know about him. And you can share his heart. You see, Jesus says in Matthew 12, one who is greater than Jonah has come. And in the same way that Jonah thought that his detriment was, the, was being thrown into the sea and swallowed by a fish, it was actually his salvation. 
And you're gonna think that my detriment is the cross. And you're gonna think that it's over, that I've been swallowed up by death, as it were, but I will raise on the third day, and in the same way that Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, I will spend three nights and three days in the belly of the earth, and I will be vomited up, as it were. I will resurrect, conquering death. And in the way that God the Father called Jonah to do something that was unthinkable and he disobeyed, he will call me to do something unthinkable and I will obey in every way perfectly because as he was a bad prophet, I am the perfect and true and good and once and for all prophet, priest, and king. And in me and only me will you have the life that you long for. Stop running. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And yes, my grace will offend you. And yes, it will lead you into uncomfortable places. But ultimately in it, you will not only see the heart of God, you will share it. Oh God, would you make us like Jesus, not Jonah? Holy Spirit, would you do a work within us that opens our eyes, that even as we prayed before the sermon, that would illumine, illuminate our hearts and our minds such that our wayward hearts, just like Jonah, would turn. We'd run to the one who came down who assures us that no matter where or how deep the pit of our sin is, your grace is deeper still. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.